0: Colossians 1:24 through 29 Beginning in verse 24 Paul writes Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body That is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he works powerfully within me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to sing to you, to pray to you, to be heard by you, and to hear you in your word. We ask that as we look at Paul's example of his own ministry, that we would draw on it, that through this time your spirit would work in our hearts, and we would be more conformed to the image of Christ because of this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I read passages like these, I have a response that is typical as I read Paul more than other people, which is a feeling of inferiority and incompetence. If you look at everything Paul is saying here, Paul is uniquely dedicated to God in everything that he does. He's a model Christian, and when you look at this passage, you see that on display— you see what makes him unique in his approach to what he does for God. You don't get to tell people, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if God is not doing something amazing through you. So I begin with a question for you, and it's a question I ask myself. What are you doing? How is he working through you? Each of the things that we'll look at today, the five things I've got, suffering, ministering, revealing, growing, and struggling, are things that I imagine most of you are doing in some way. I imagine that those of you who are involved in ministry are experiencing some of these things. The difference between Paul and me, and maybe Paul and you, is not the fact that we do both of those things. We we alike suffer and minister as Paul suffers, but the way in which and the reason in which he does it can often be different from how and why we do it. So as you look through your notes, you'll see those five things. And if you're a note taker, today can just be an opportunity where you say, here's a, a way where Paul is different from me here's something I have to learn and how to suffer, because we all know, I think, what God expects of us. But the way we, we, we need to do it should draw on Paul's example in this passage. To make it even more sort of convicting, realize this about Paul. As he's writing this, he's not 80 years old. He's not old Paul with white hair streaming down his back in jail. He's not 70 years old. The only indication we have of his age in the Bible is in Acts seven fifty eight, and that calls Paul a young man when he came to the Lord, right as he was persecuting Christians before God met him on the road to Damascus. He was a young man and that word in Greek typically speaks of someone in their 20s. So he may have been 25 or around that age when he was converted by God on the road to Damascus when Christ said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? So, and this is the only math that you'll have to do, I hope, this, this sermon at least, When he wrote this letter, scholars estimate that it was somewhere between 52 and 62 A.D. So, I'm not that great at math. That wasn't my strong class, but he was 25 and 35 A.D., and now it's 52 to 62. Paul could be maybe in his 40s or maybe early 50s at the highest or so. So, he's about five or ten years older than I am, I'm way below where he is. He's also been a Christian for only uh, no more than 30 years. So that's a high bar. Age didn't accomplish Paul's maturity. Experience helped it as God worked through him. But it's, it's not either of those things. And you as well as I probably know Christians who have grown stagnant for a period of time. Age and experience can be useful to God, but for Paul, it was something much more significant. And what it was, his formula is not a secret. In this passage, he refers to Christ seven times, and throughout this whole book, he refers to Christ numerous times. You've already heard sermons that focus specifically on Christ and specifically use the name Christ over and over. In fact, If you look throughout Colossians, you will not find a single time where Paul refers to Jesus as just Jesus. His name of choice is Christ, and occasionally he will say Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, but always Christ, especially in this book. Why does he do that? Well, maybe you know that the meaning of the word Christ. It means Messiah, the Mashiach in Hebrew, That word refers to the anointed ruler from God who suffers and dies and then reigns. Reigns over the earth, reigns from Jerusalem. It's a name that speaks of his power. When Christ is named, our response is immediate obedience. We know that his power is supreme and sovereign over us. Whether we feel like it or not, we owe him everything. And when Paul is speaking of Jesus as the Christ, he's reminding us of all those things. If I had to say there was a secret, because people are always looking for the secret to doing something, if Paul had to say that, he would sum it up in one word, Christ. And everything you see in his ministry today, I hope you will see how he is connecting it back to Christ in one way or the other. And sometimes we lose that focus. So how do we keep our focus on him in these ways? As you've probably already heard—actually, I've listened to some of them, so I know you've heard—in other sermons thus far in Colossians, you've seen that the church in Colossae was distracted and deceived by other man-made sorts of, of, of ideas and philosophies, like visions that people have that are supernatural, or that Through asceticism or self-denial, you can reach a state of maturity. There are man-made deceptions that are penetrating into the church of Colossians like they get into our churches sometimes. And Paul is pleading with them to take their eyes off of that stuff and to trust in the sufficiency of Christ to do whatever it is they need regarding life and godliness. Not only does Paul savor his relationship with Christ and does everything that we see here for Christ, he doesn't do it with the chip on his shoulder. He's not begrudging in his obedience. As we look in the first verse, we see his attitude as he suffers for Christ in the worst of times. What are you doing, Paul? Listen now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. He's rejoicing. When you suffer, or when you see the prospect of social rejection, which is, I think, the most common form of suffering that Christians in America experience, do you anticipate that with joy? That's the convicting for me aspect of this verse. He uses a phrase here that might be a little bit surprising to some of us who understand the death of Jesus and the price it paid. He says that when he looks at his sufferings, he rejoices because they fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When we read that, we have to wonder, what does Paul mean by what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? As we have heard already, Jesus paid the debt we have for sin in full on the cross. You'll remember probably the words of Jesus right before he died. He said, tetelestai in Greek, which means the debt is paid or it is finished. Both are accurate translations. So according to Jesus, according to the whole Bible, there's nothing lacking in his satisfaction of the Father's wrath. Paul is not saying that he will suffer more wrath on your behalf, or on their behalf. What Paul's talking about is something he's already alluded to, that Christ is the head, and the church is his body. And when the church suffers for him, it identifies them with him. The church fills up, in the period before Christ's return, the church fills up the sufferings of Christ, And Paul is saying, I rejoice in those because when I suffer as he suffered from a world who hates him, I identify with him. It makes me closer to him. It makes me see myself as his agent instead of just Paul walking through normal life. And Paul loved the idea so much that he could be experiencing the same rejection that Christ experienced that it would cause him to rejoice. He was not alone in that. In Acts 5.41, as Peter and John were going into the temple and teaching the gospel for the first time, they were suffering. They were beaten by the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, and it says likewise of them this, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Paul suffers for the church gladly in his ministry because it identifies him with Christ. That's how he engages that suffering. So, you know, sometimes people will identify themselves in a variety of ways. Sometimes people will put tattoos on their body for people who are loved ones or friends that they want to always commemorate or they want you to see. I'm not advocating that by making this illustration, but when Paul In Galatians 6.17, when he sees his scars, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. He didn't say, oh, I wish I didn't have that scar. I wish I didn't have that, that limp from that beating. He thinks this is for Christ. And when you endeavor to take a step of faith and to reach out to somebody else who doesn't know Christ with the gospel, and you suffer rejection, you can have that same joy. And I know some of you have experienced that joy. I'm not speaking as someone who's somehow a master of this. I know there are those here who are more mature than I am, but I just want to encourage you that it is not an arduous, sad, tragic thing to suffer for Christ. When you suffer for Him, the Holy Spirit captivates your heart reminding you of everything you know that he suffered and you feel closer to him. I feel closer to him than in most other times of my life when I do suffer, though it is rare. Maturity recognizes and anticipates that reality. So you share Christ with someone and they reject you, you can rejoice you share Christ with someone, and they accept it. You rejoice. It's a win-win, as far as what the Bible teaches. And that's what Paul wants us to know. Maturity inwardly finds suffering to be joyful, and it expresses that with thanksgiving and joy in the moment. Thank you, Father, for giving me this opportunity. May Christ be honored in my body. As Paul continues, he works into his specific calling. Each Christian has a unique calling. You're not called, and I'm not called, to always do everything the same way Paul is and to suffer just like he does. So you're not inadequate or immature because you're not experiencing his life. Listen to what he says his unique calling is in verse 25. Of which I became a minister... He's speaking about the church. He became a minister of the church, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. His title for himself is a minister. And that word that he uses is probably familiar to you. It's diakonia, which is where we get the word deacon, the people who serve in the church. And the concept is really simple. A servant or a minister gets something from somewhere else and he passes it on as a servant to someone who needs it. And The Bible teaches that everyone in the church has a gift from the Spirit so that they can serve the church with that gift. What is yours? You are just an intermediary. You are just someone that God blesses so that you can bless someone else, or a great deal of people. It could be anything. And the church itself is just a collection, a network of people being blessed by God. And in John 17, when Jesus is praying for the church and he's envisioning in his mind what he knows the church will be like, he says, Father, may they be one, the church, just as we are one, the Father and the Son, so that the world may know that you sent me. As we seek to serve and to bless in the way the Spirit has blessed us, it becomes evident that God is within our midst, and the church knows that Jesus was sent to earth to die for our sins and to rise for our forgiveness. We all work together from the Most mundane of tasks to the most grandiose to serve each other. And I think the thing that's most convicting for me is that service is not about you. God gives you a gift through the Spirit so you can serve other people. Do you know what happens when you take that gift and that service and you make it about yourself? That's a cult. A cult is where the f- central figure in the religion is a person who is not Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, I just have a stewardship from God. He gives me his word, and I give it to people. And finally, he emphasizes those people. He says in the middle of verse 25 that he's a steward. he has a stewardship from God that was given to me for you. For you, the Colossians, whom he had never, as far as we can see, met at this point. But he had a stewardship to them, and he cared about them, and he wanted to -to face-to-face interact with any church that he writes to. Some of you may know the author A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink was a profound evangelical scholar in the first half of the 20th century. He was a pastor for a time. He was a major writer, and a number of his works are still read and studied. But in the last years of his life, he had an inheritance. About 12 years before he died, he inherited a great deal of money and was able to move to a more remote island in England and live there without having to work anymore. His biographer writes this about him. He says he lived faithfully for his remaining 12 years of life, writing and producing the periodical while he lived in virtual isolation, not even attending a local church. He justified this behavior by explaining that the admonition not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. That's Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. We know that because in the COVID era, we've been teaching all churches and remembering that requirement as we try to understand how to live as You know that. He justified, or perhaps rationalized, by saying that this admonition does not mean that the sheep of Christ should attend a place where the goats predominate, or where their attendance would sanction that which is dishonouring to Christ. On Sundays, he spent his time pastoring his flock of faithful readers by writing letters, answering their questions concerning the Bible and theology. Would-be visitors, would-be visitors who had traveled great distances to storn away his island were discouraged as they were usually turned away not being allowed to see him. The townspeople knew little about him, except that each day at a certain hour, he took a walk through the town, during which he would shop from time to time. That is a tragedy. This guy was physically able to walk around and do normal stuff. He knew about God. He wrote about God. As far as I can see, he loved God. But he was unwilling to meet in the congregation. If Paul had lived in that island, do you think people would have not known his name? Do you think people would have been turned away from visiting him? Every time Paul's in prison, What is he saying over and over to, can you come, can you bring, I was blessed by this person who brought this to me, and he's writing to these churches and saying, by the way, all these people visiting me, they greet you. Listen to some of the things Paul says about his eagerness to meet face-to-face in the church. Romans 1.11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. To the Thessalonians he wrote, but since we were torn away, brothers, for a short time, not in person, or in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. 1 Thessalonians two seventeen and 18, if you're interested. And then right before he dies, one of the last things he wrote, 2 Timothy 1, 4, He writes to Timothy and says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. He's about to die. What's he thinking about? The struggles that Timothy is going through in Timothy's ministry, and he wants to be there for him so he can comfort him face to face. Showing up is crucial showing up is a big part of exercising our ministry. You notice that Paul never just writes a letter and says, oh, that's off. People know what I think. Now I can go back to my villa and be alone. He wants to see them, and when he sees a church like 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, we have two of the letters. There may have been three or four or more letters. The more difficult the church is, the more involved Paul tends to be because he sees the need. You have two letters to the church at Corinth. You have one four-chapter letter to the Philippians. Paul was there for people because he saw himself as a servant, He saw himself as someone who had received an amazing gift, God's word, and he wasn't just happy when he had deposited it. He wanted to follow up and make sure people understood it and assess their understanding and meet any more needs that might exist in the gaps of understanding in the process of following Christ. Paul served the church, delivering God's word to people because he knew God had entrusted them to his care. If you look around you, these are the people God has entrusted to your care. For some of you, I think this message will sort of be an encouragement. You have been laboring. You have been working and serving, and when you see this, you relate with it. For others of you, maybe it will be the wind beneath your wings. Maybe you'll be able to see what God would have you do. Understand the giftings of the Spirit through your ministry and actually really start to invest in other people, whatever it is that God has given you to do. For some people, that will be teaching. For others, it could be music. It could be just being compassionate and being an open ear. It could be any number of things. But if you're a believer, you have the Spirit not just for yourself, for a purpose. What are you passing on as a servant of Jesus Christ? As Paul continues into verses 26 and 27, he gets into a part of his ministry of the Word, which is what we would call evangelism in a lot of cases. He talks about his evangelism of Gentiles this way in verse 26. He's passing on, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He calls his message a mystery, revealing the mystery. What is the mystery? Okay, that's important to figuring out what he's doing. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Might be just a couple verses down from what you're looking at. He says it to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The mystery is not mysterious to you and to me. It's Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is mysterious to everyone outside the church who has not been saved, who has not repented of their sins and believed in him. When I think about this, I'm reminded of a really wonderful video I watched recently where Ben Shapiro, who's a political commentator, is interviewing John MacArthur, a pastor in Southern California. It's a great video, and I encourage you, if you want to see the evangelization of an Orthodox yarmulke-wearing Jew who's a brilliant man by an evangelical pastor for 90 minutes or so, it, it is incredible to see At one point, though, Ben Shapiro is striving to understand where he and John MacArthur are at odds and where they're similar to make sense of the Christian message. And Ben says to him this, What do you think is the key distinguishing factor between the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of Judaism? And John replies this way, Well, first of all, I don't like to talk about it as a philosophy. I'd rather talk about it as a revelation because it's divine. The same God who wrote the Old Testament wrote the New Testament. I love that. It is a revelation. Because of this, an unbeliever cannot rationalize their way to seeing Jesus Christ. You can't deduce your way into knowing him. You have to have the revelation, and you have to have the Spirit opening your heart and revealing it and turning the light on in your head. What a perfect concept to describe genuine salvation. And Paul is adamant about this too. In Romans 10, he asks four rhetorical questions. Let me just give you two of them. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? What God teaches in the New Testament especially, but also in the Old, is that he works through people revealing the mystery of his word and of Jesus Christ. And that's our joy to be part of with whatever opportunity we have. Who do you want to share the gospel with? Are there people in your family who are not saved? Are there people who are thinking that they're saved and need to be met with the gospel in a more descript way? I have an accountability process with the other elders at West Hill Church. Every month we look through a series of questions and we answer to how we're doing as a way of maintaining purity. And the final question is, have you shared the gospel with anyone this month? And sometimes it's no. And there's a follow-up question that I think uh, is crucial. Have you prayed about it? Have you prayed to ask God to help you? Let me show you Paul's secret to sharing the gospel. I'm going to steal from Colossians 4, so I apologize if Paul or... Sam or anyone's going to preach on Colossians 4, but I'm going to just take a little bit. They can have the rest. This is Paul's secret for evangelism. Verse 3. Now let me back up to verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. What's Paul's secret? It's two parts. Pray for an open door, which is an opportunity, and you know that those are of the Lord. You can't just create those all by yourself. And then pray that I may speak clearly, because you know that when you're in that moment, you can depend on self. You can mess it up and make it more difficult to understand them before. And Paul's saying, I don't want to miss those open doors. I want one, and I want to articulate the gospel clearly. That's Paul's secret prayer. As he endeavors to serve Christ in all these ministries, the pattern you see in each verse is I want to honor Christ because I owe him everything, and I want to do so depending on on him for his help and his sufficiency. So you might not be able to share the gospel every day, but are you praying? And I ask that to my own shame, because I don't pray for that some days. I forget of the need to do that. We can pray every day. We can seek the Lord to open a door. Paul is praying constantly for these churches and for these opportunities and wanted them to join in and we need to join in. In verse 28, Paul moves on to his ministry within the church. And what he says is so instructive for us. Verse 28, he begins, "Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom" that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So here you see really directly stated Paul's goal in his ministry. And it's the four last words of this verse. Everyone mature in Christ. He's not praying, maybe I could baptize more people than the other apostles. He's not praying, maybe I can be a more widely read author than these other guys. None of his prayer here is a superficial thing that human beings are typically tempted by. He's not trying to pack out a building or a church. He's not trying to expand a church. He's not concerned about the giving statement. He's not concerned about anything that human beings are in charge of. He wants everyone to be mature in Christ. His primary focus in his ministry is spiritual maturity. And he states the way he does that in the church in the first three words. Him we proclaim. Why? Turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18 for a second. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. Present tense, as we gaze at Christ, we are transformed into the same image. Him we proclaim. And we proclaim Him, he says in verse 28, in two crucial ways. Look after those three words warning everyone and teaching everyone. Warning has to do with saying no. Warning is caution. Warning is calling out sin that the world accepts. Warning is telling people to stay away from the world and to draw near to Jesus Christ and to turn to him in faith. That's warning. Teaching here is just what it sounds like. The process of learning. Here's something more to be aware of. Now, you take those two aspects of Paul's ministry, you put them together, and that's everything. I ask you this, which one is more popular? The warning or the teaching? Yeah. Now, in the Puritan era, if you read those sermons, it's almost the opposite. If you're warning people, if you're telling them how terrible as sinners they are, You seemed to be really cool back then. But we know that's not the case right now for whatever reason. We know that the emphasis is on the teaching ministry and the positive things that we can say, so much so that some pastors will not use the word sin, will not talk about the concept of repentance or turning from sin to Christ, and they will certainly stay away from hot-button sin issues which could lose them popularity in the world, and jeopardize the size of their church. And that's why Paul starts the way he does. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching. There's no fear of man. There is a sincere desire for the maturity of the church. So when you hear a convicting message, praise the Lord. When you hear an edifying, uplifting, interesting message, praise the Lord. When your pastors and your elders are comforting people and sitting with them and listening and and counseling in the ways they need, they're doing their job. And when there's church discipline and they are calling out sin in a biblical way, as Matthew 18 says, they are doing their job. Praise God that this is a church that's like that. Now, finally, when we speak about everyone mature in Christ and Paul's process of growing them, what does maturity mean? And I've already alluded to it in 2 Corinthians, but listen also to Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. Right there, warning and teaching in the same way. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all, in all res- aspects into him who is the head That is Christ. Over and over, Paul doesn't give a worldly status as an indicator of maturity, but do you look like Jesus? And if you want to know what maturity is, read the Gospels. See the way Jesus behaves. Someone who's like him is a mature person. That's as distilled as I can give it to you. Paul grows the church by correcting and teaching with God's word to mature people into the image of Christ. So many distractions exist for us. I think in a lot of ways, we replace maturity with self-improvement. Think about, let me give you some of the things that I think people talk about and some of the things I wish I could improve about my life. If I slept more, if I got up earlier, got an early start on the day, if I prayed this prayer this much every day. For some people, if I got a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a husband, or a wife, and for those of you on the other side of that, if I fix this problem with my boyfriend, or my girlfriend, or my husband, or my wife, my life would be great. I would be a model of maturity. If I ask my doctor about this problem, if I delete this friend, this app, or this account, I will be mature Here's the ticket to knowing if something will mature you. Is it something that a non Christian can do as well? If they can, it won't mature you. If I finished my goal, if I got completion of the goal of going to bed earlier, sleeping better, and waking up earlier, I might be more alert, more patient, more effective. But I would be a more alert, more patient, more effective sinner. It would create no necessary sanctification if I wasn't using that time to draw near to Christ more than I am. Maturity comes only through knowing Christ and coming closer to Him. And that's Paul's desire for this church. Finally, he ends this in verse 29 saying, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This final section looks away from everything that he's doing and focuses on how he's getting it done. When you work in ministry, a lot of the question that comes to your mind and the question that I have is, how much was me and how much was God? And Paul answers that in a unique way here. Look how he begins, for this I toil struggling. Paul was not letting go and letting God. That bumper stick was, I think, ubiquitous when I was a little kid. It was all over people's cars. My wife saw one a couple of weeks ago and told me, I saw let go and let God. And at the time I thought, well, that's not as bad as some of the other ones I'm seeing these days. But still, it's not accurate in terms of how ministry works. Paul labors. He works. He toils. Listen to this in 1 Thessalonians 2, four, For you remember, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working day and night, so not as to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul works hard often. I think Paul was underslept. And I think he was underslept as one of the potentially greatest models of maturity that God has ever given us. And yet, he says, though he's working, Paul says how he's working in the second half of this verse. He's working with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So this is not just natural energy that you sort of can build up by eating a good meal and having some coffee. That's not what Paul's talking about. When Jesus was ministering, a woman with a hemorrhage for several years came to him and touched him. And it says that power went out from him. That's spiritual energy. It transfers through us. We are just servants. And in this case, it happened, it seems, without Jesus intentionally making it happen. She touched him. God the Father was aware. God empowered him somehow. And the, and the power went out. And he said, who touched me? That's spiritual power. When you're done with something that you're using, spiritual power, you're saying, what just happened? Because it wasn't me. How do you get to that? 2 Timothy 2, listen to this, verses 21 through 22. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you have the Spirit in you, spiritual power is available. The only hindrance is your impurity. And specifically, Paul says, flee youthful passions those addictive tendencies that are worldly and fleshly and self-based, as you give those up, you repent, and you experience the cleansing and the forgiveness promised to us by God. You are pure, and you are ready for any work that He has for you. Think of in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with the Spirit, or do, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunk with wine is youthful passions. Filled with the Spirit is spiritual power. So yours and my sins, those addictive tendencies where we're trying to please ourselves, those are what get in the way of our spiritual empowerment from the Spirit because we're depending on ourselves. We're looking to ourselves for direction instead of looking to His Word and asking the Spirit to guide us. Paul contends for the church here. He says, I struggle. And he says, I struggle in a word that means there's an opponent. Who's the opponent? It could be flesh and blood, Gentiles who are silversmiths, who are building idols that his ministry takes away from when he goes to a town. It could be the Judaizers compelling people to be circumcised after he goes into a town and says, you can be saved freely through the grace of Jesus Christ. But it can also be spiritual, Our opposition, which we struggle against, is not merely flesh and blood, as Paul says. He had a messenger of Satan who assaulted him. So again, if you're not purifying yourself through repentance and asking for forgiveness and cleansing, you are likely overwhelmed by whatever opposition you might find because you're you're depending on self. You take in all these things, all Paul's spiritual labors. There's a really consistent pattern. He's operating for the honor of Christ based on depending on Christ in all things. And he's doing it as a response for what Christ has done for him. Has Christ saved you? Do you know that? Are you responding to him from genuine gratitude? Or is there something still in the way? Everything that we see in Paul says one thing. Him we proclaim. Turn to him. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for empowerment. Ask for him to use you. Paul lives to bring honor to Jesus Christ and works according to God's command and God's empowerment. May the same be true for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time the love that you pour out among your people. And we ask that we would be your humble servants and that you would do great things through us as we submit to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.